Welcome back to a bonus episode of Full Metal RPG. I'm your host, Brendan Carrion. Today, I am very lucky to be joined by world-famous game developer, Mark D.S. Truman. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. I don't, world fame, that's a big claim. Well, I mean, in the the, the era of the internet, there's got to be someone in South Korea who's playing one of your games, right? There's got to be. Yeah, I guess so. I guess guess that we do ship games literally all over the world. Like, sometimes we'll be shipping a game and I'm like, this is going to Romania? Fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's it's the era in which we live. So uh, why not take full advantage of it? (laughs) Um, So... uh, Mark, Mark, if you, in case you guys don't know, Mark Diaz Truman is a game developer and uh, co-owner, or at least co-founder, if, if I understand correctly, of his own game company. But I want him to talk to you guys in his own words. So uh, let's let's just kind of do a little. We'll get started with a little kind of getting to know you kind of stuff. So, Mark, um, when you got started gaming, when you were just like a a Wii one and you started gaming. What was it? What was it that got you in? What was the first game? A Wii Burkenya, as we'd say here in Albuquerque. Um, yeah, <laughs> I did Dungeons and Dragons. Like I got a Dungeons and Dragons second edition book, you know, with the fighter, the fighter on the cover with the, the horse, right? Like I think we must've gotten that from like a used bookstore. And yes. And like when I was a boy scout, like we would have sleepovers. I'd be like in middle school or like maybe very, very early high school. But I think it's probably middle school. And we would play Dungeons and Dragons for, for, for fucking ever. And like till three, four o'clock in the morning. And I, for the life of me, never remember using like an adventure. I like, I didn't even know published modules existed. Right. Because there was, there was like one game store and my allowance was like $10 a month. Right. So like, <laughs> so like, you know, I would, we would make, we would just make stuff up and, and like, yeah, that's way one of the reasons I love dungeon world for a long time was because it runs a little bit. Like I remember playing D and D like, I don't roll the dice. Mm. Yeah. Stuff happens. This is great. Next thing. Next thing. Right? Yes. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that solid, solid. And so, um, like when you were younger, right? Like I, I, you, you've played for a long time. Uh, did you did you keep it going through your teenage and college years? Yeah. So when I was got to high school and I was you know a little like moody, upset kid, um, I had a, a couple of older friends who introduced me to Mage the Awakening or the Ascension. Mage mm-hmm. the Ascension. The right? Ascension, yeah. yeah. The Roll the Darkness game, and that for me at like yes. at like fourteen was like mind blowing, right? Like this was before the matrix, right? So you'd just the right. idea that like reality isn't reality is like, you know, cars only work cause we believe in them. Like I, <laughs> it's like, it's amazing. Right? And I was hanging out with these kids who were like two, three years older than me. They were like seniors and I was like fresh. So I just thought they were the coolest people in the whole world. Um, and I played, you know, tons of mage with them and then, and then they graduated and I went to college and didn't do much. I played like a shadow run campaign when I was in college, but just was pretty small. And then when I moved back to Albuquerque after I was uh, done with school, um, I started playing in like werewolf and vampire LARPs uh, with, with my brother. Really? Yeah. I did like LARPing for a couple of years and there's some really cool emergent stuff there. Like, like when you have a vampire, it's effectively like a mini society, right? There's like 60 people involved in this game. All the power dynamics of people come into play and it's all this like emergent stuff, but unfortunately, the line between characters, like character stuff and out of character stuff, gets real blurry really fast. And the politics outside the game become as important as the politics inside the game. And that's when I found indie games. Was like, 
like when when I was like at my lowest, like oh, LARPers are the worst. I am <laughs> I am a LARPer. I hate myself, right? And that's when I I got turned on to some of John Wick stuff and um, you know the beginnings of the story game movement and stuff. And that all came after a long, long, long time of playing what I guess are pretty trad games for a really, really long time. Wow, that I was not expecting that. I didn't know you had this crazy LARP story in your back pocket. That's great. Um, so. You work for slash with slash develop Magpie Games, is that right? Yeah, Marissa Kelly and I um, founded Magpie in 2011, and it was it was like that same time where I was starting to get into indie games. And we, we originally were going to do a comic book. Like I'm a writer, she's an artist. We'll do a comic book, and we did that for like a week, and we we're like, this is fucking exhausting. This is so hard. What what, what, could, yeah. what could we do that would be easier? <laughs> and we we're like <laughs> almost anything, almost, really. Almost anything, yeah. And so so we started doing uh, our first role playing game, and and I had a bunch of frequent flyer miles, so I flew out to Gen Con. So I was like, well, let's go to Gen Con and talk to people. And we met Daniel Solis, who wrote uh, Doe, Pilgrims of the Flying Temple, and Will Heinmarch, who's written for everything, White Wolf, all kinds of other stuff. And we were just at their panel, and they were like, "We're going to get lunch. Do you want to get lunch?" And I was like, "Sure." And Daniel had just finished the Doe Kickstarter, which had done really, really, really well in 2011. It was like $25,000, $30,000. And which at the time was like, nobody had raised that much money before. It was crazy, right? And he was like, you should do a Kickstarter at some risk. And I said, oh, okay, we'll do a Kickstarter. And we Kickstarted our first game that plays the thing and raised $5,000, which at that time we were like, we have won the lottery. Like we have money for art, we have money for layout, we have money to ship books. It was crazy. And over the the next couple of years, we just did more and more and more until like just kind of turned into my full-time job. Wow. That's that. I I think that that story is probably going to be pretty inspirational to a lot of our listeners because, you know, the permeability of the role-playing industry is is yeah. high. It's kind of it's it's a lot like comic books, you know, that the the bridge between player to GM to amateur creator to professional content creator is it's it's a smaller gap than like somebody who's doing community theater and wants to be in movies, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I got the call to do Firefly, I was in graduate school and I had done a couple of RPGs and just someone who knew me, who knew someone who knew someone just said, hey, we need a systems person. You know who's really pretty good at this stuff is Mark. And they called me up and I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Like, let's do this thing. And that was it. All of a sudden I was developing systems for a, like, you know, pretty well-known gamer property overnight. Like that, that was it, right? And again, it doesn't pay well. And the, the hours are weird and you're still always kind of left scrambling to make it work. But yeah, man, if you want to develop RPGs, like, learn your craft, like you gotta, you gotta know what you're doing, but like you could fund a project for 20 grand with in a year without, without, you know, you don't need a master's in game design to start hacking away at doing it, especially if you're doing stuff that people like, I mean, you know, don't write games about Mexican drug lords. That stuff's hard. Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's actually a really good segue into what we're here to talk about. And I think that that actually will kind of break open. Now we've established sort of a premise. Um, a lot of what it is that we have to talk about today. So, uh, you currently have a Kickstarter going uh, for a game called cartel. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Cartel is like my labor of love for the last four or five years. I've been trying to figure out. This is what I hear. Yeah, I've been trying yeah, to four, figure four, out for four a long years in the making, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
in 2014, I started working, well, really 2013, I started working with a guy named Andrew Medeiros uh, on Urban Shadows, which is our Powered by the Apocalypse game of like political urban fantasy. And that kind of opened a door for me because like, so I'm Latino, I'm from New Mexico, which is a weird place anyway, um, kind of lies at the intersection of a lot of different cultures. And all my games before that had been like, you know, not, they're not like white people games, but they're, they're not Mexican for sure. Right. Like there's nothing about them that says, oh yeah, this guy grew up in New Mexico. Um, well, I think there might be, but it's super secret hidden stuff. Like all my games I think are kind of about, uh, being told that you don't have any options. <laughs> so like I wrote a whole game about like, you know, sunshine or, uh, the core where like the world's going to end and the, all the characters are like, no, we're going to save the world, right? Pacific Rim style, the Armageddon is canceled. Um, but Urban Shadows is like political, right? So you're not just being told no by like the sun exploding. It's like there's a whole political system and you're fighting it. And I was like, holy shit, I can do all this stuff with culture. But I also felt like, yeah, but it's still vampires and werewolves and metaphors, right? It's not really about my people in any meaningful way. And then I played a game called Sagas of the Icelanders. You ever played that? Sagas? I can't say that I have. I've heard a lot about it. Can't say I've played it. Yeah, it's it's. I played it just a couple of times. It's a really really cool Viking game, basically. I mean, it, it has a lot about like farming and uh, marriages, and it's not just like all Vikings raiding the countryside. It's like all caught up in the culture of it. And the guy who ran it for me, Mikhail, like he knew that culture, and I would do things. He'd be like, "Well, you might want to kind of a little bit more like this." And I'm like, "Oh, I totally get it." Like, like look at how I can play into this culture and not be a part of it, but like start to understand it through the mechanics. Um, and then when I, when I really stepped back, I was like, all right, this is the system I want to use. This is, this is the, the work I want to do. I just got to find a frame for it, like a time and a place. And then when I was in the middle of watching Breaking Bad, which is set here in Albuquerque, but has very, very few Latino characters, at least as main characters, they're always at the fringes. Like they're, they're antagonists, they're sidekicks, they're always at the edges. I was like, what if the Latinos were in the middle of this, this thing we're grappling with, the drug war. And then I was like, what if it was in Mexico, right? Like, what if it, like, galaxy brain, what if, what, like, what if it was in Mexico? And then I had this whole thing where I was like, holy shit, how did I not think about Robert Rodriguez and El Mariachi, like one of my favorite movies as a kid, right? Like, how did I not think about how all those narratives of the drug war and the mariachi and like that, that kind of hyper reality, how did I not think of that? So when I sat down to write Cartel, it was with this deep love for narco fiction, like The Wire, but also with a sense that there's something sort of beautiful and grotesque and over the top about this kind of modern thing that we're, we're living through, right, that Sicario is about or, or, you know, Once Upon a Time in Mexico is about. And those pieces were what I wanted to summon up and capture for players. So, um, this is going to be a Powered by the Apocalypse game, right? Yeah, yeah. It's PBTA. Um, I've been working with Powered by the Apocalypse for a couple of years now. And I, things that I love about it are, number one, it doesn't require you to do the story game, like let's plot the whole plot before we play the game thing. right? You don't have to be thinking about like arcs for your character. You just sit down and you say, I'm a Sicario, I'm a hitman, but I don't work for the cartels anymore. I robbed them. Like, that's my thing. Like, I'm Omar, man. Like, I just, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm an antagonist to the cartels. Like, Great, let's see where that goes. Could be that by the end of the session, you end up murdered with a briefcase full of money. Could be that by the end of the session, you come back to work for the cartels. I don't know, man. Let's just see what happens. Um, and then two is it allows me to build in to the mechanics very specific things. So, for example, 
Um, one of the ways that you get rid of stress, which is a constant kind of wear and tear on your character, sort of the hit points of cartel, if there's hit points, um, is that you can go and confess your sins to a priest. So that's like a specific thing in the game is that you go. Is that, is that a move? Yeah, it's a move. Yeah. Confess your sins is a stress move. Confess your sins. Yeah. And it has to be to a priest. It has to be to a priest, man. Yeah. You got to go. You got to go do it. Um, and when you. <laughs> so you I, I, I like it. I like it. There's no there's no version where you can go. You can talk to your woman or anything. You got to go to a priest. You got to talk to a priest. Some some characters uh-huh. have different ways to do it. So the spouse character has tons of ways to clear stress like. You know, all these other ways to mess with characters and inflict stress upon them and clear stress because that's the role that spouses play in narco fiction, right? Like, oh, that's fascinating. I like that the way that there's a, essentially a, a, an alternate damage track. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and like the damage track itself. So, for example, in Cartel, there's no like hit points. If you get in a car wreck, I'm just going to tell you mark stress. Everything goes into that stress economy, right? But if you get shot, there's a move called when you get fucking shot, where you roll and on a high roll, you're fine. Like you got shot, but like, you know, it was in the arm and you're, and you're cool. Or, or maybe like you got shot in the chest, but you had like a book in your jacket and you're okay. Right. The classic kind of El Mariachi kind of, you're, oh, you're not quite dead thing. Um, on a mid-level success, you're, you're wounded and you get to pick off a list. Like, is it, is it really messy and you're going to have a scar? Is it really painful? Do you need medical attention? Like it's kind of your pick and the pick for the person who shot you. So you both pick something. Um, and on a miss, when you miss your role, you die. Okay. Like, but, but like maybe not. I I have to say, I I was listening to you on tabletop radio hour talking about this mechanic for PBTA. And I, I, I own a few PBTA games and I've played a few PBTA games. Yeah. And I fucking love this mechanic. This is like it's so gritty. It's so gritty. If you if you've ever listened to our show, you know that we're obsessed with grit. We're obsessed yeah. with darkness. And it's just it's like such an intense mechanic. That is this the first game that has that mechanic? Uh, no, Sagas actually has a mechanic that's kind of similar. Like when you take a physical challenge, you can die. Um, like so so there's some other stuff that kind of does similar things. Um, but this is the first one where it's like instead of having a wound tracker, it's like and, and hit points or what boxes or whatever. It's like it's like you get hit, m- make a check, see what happens. I mean, that's just save versus death, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like I always feel like I Touché. come full circle. I'm like, I'm back to D and um, I got to give Jason Morningstar, who wrote Fiasco, credit for this because we played Cartel and I had this kind of harm track, which is sort of the typical thing. And he was like, No, man, you just got to do when you get fucking shot. And just like the mechanics just kind of fell out of his mouth and onto the page. Like it was perfect. Um, but one of the things that I did was tweak it, right, for different characters. So if you're the Sicario, you can take a move called Duro, which means tough. And it means you always get a plus one to your roll. So you're, you're harder to kill just across the board. And if you do miss, you always have time for one act of vengeance. Always. Meaning like you miss your roll and the GM says, okay, you're dying. And you're like, wait, wait, hold on. I want to drive to this guy's house and kill him. Like, great man you're the sicario that's awesome do it right um and it's not just uh it's not just vengeance because the fun of apocalypse world is the flavor of the move so let me read the move it says uh duro when you get fucking shot at plus one to your roll on a miss you have time for an act of vengeance or kindness before you fall to your wounds oh i love it i love it yeah that's very tight that's very tight i like it so um all right so that having kind of been established 
Uh, the cartel game is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. I've kind of been watching the ash can on the yes. magpie site. And, um, so I was very excited to see it drop. Uh, if that's going on now, yeah. if you, yeah. if you, if people want to go on there, check out the Kickstarter, the book looks very lush. It looks very beautiful. And there are a wide variety of pledge options. Uh, I think it's very there's a lot of exciting stuff that you can still get. Am I right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's like twenty bucks gets you every PDF we're doing, which includes a, now two supplements, like two full supplements, I think, and a mini supplement, which is my CIA mini supplement. I fucking like I love like CIA stories, so we're gonna have a special like thirty page thing that's just for putting the CIA in the game. And then uh, the book is the $50 pledge level. It's an eight by eight book with full color art. We have this amazing artist, Andrew Thompson, who does these like really super vivid, almost like Grand Theft Auto kind of over the top, like really colorful pictures. Um, and then Miguel and Hella Espinosa, who's been my almost like co-developer and cultural consultant, um, has been doing the layout for the game. And you might know Miguel from The Wall which is a, a Patreon that he started. Um, it's based on the work of Edgar Clements, who's a, a really famous comic book artist in Mexico. And it's basically, you play like, uh, the short version, like basically werewolves and jaguar, were jaguars and were cats and things like that that hunt angels for their meat. Like it's super, it's just super metal and super crazy. <laughs> but uh, Miguel contacted me and was like, I live by Durango where you set the game. And so he's been informing all the stuff in the game like i'm mexican but i don't live in durango right so miguel's been like pushing me on what it actually looks like what it really looks like and we're making it a really authentic game and he happens to just be one of the best graphic designers i've ever met so the book is freaking beautiful and you can see the quick start which is available for free on drive through shows you what the look of the game is like i mean it's that we we know what we want this game to look like and the quick start already kind of shows it off Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, the it's a gorgeous product. I can't wait to see it IRL. It's very exciting. Now, um, I got I got two batteries of questions for you as we awesome. go forward. <laughs> one is going to be kind of about uh, one is about PBTA, cool, and how and 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 kind of some of the the issues and culture that surround that game system, and the other is about Kickstarter because I think it's an interesting sort of social experiment. Uh, and then I've got I've got a few more things to kind of just wrap it all up. But so let me just start on the PBTA side, okay? So PBTA as a force in the role playing industry slash gaming world, yeah, yeah, it it's developed this really strong culture behind it that I don't know if Vincent Baker and 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 his partner Megui, I don't know if the, if if they kind of foresaw it when they were creating it. But it's it's there's a there's a whole world that kind of sees PBTA almost as its axis, right? Yeah. And, you, and you can really you can really feel that when you start interacting with, say, for instance, like the Gauntlet. Yep. There's there's a very strong community there, and they have a very particular way of seeing what gaming is and how gaming should be done in a certain way. That's their default, right? Like like you talk to them, that they compare yeah. every game they play two pbta games that's their that's their default yeah yeah now there's a lot of people in that community who are um very interested in how sort of like social issues are represented in game yeah how social issues turn into mechanics how uh 
players come to the table to portray certain things. And um, there can definitely be some kind of like interesting moments of sort of like cultural interaction <laughs> that from, happen from within the community to people outside With, the community. Yes, sure, sure. <laughs> you're very, you're so, very diplomatic about it. Yeah, sometimes sometimes <laughs> PBTA gamers are intense, right? About about what they see games as what what they're supposed to do, right? What they're what what the sure. goal of a game is. How how, how does cartel fig, fig, figure into that? And like and and did you take that into consideration when you were writing cartel? Yeah, great. that's a great great fucking question. So so first, I mean, I think one of the so I talked to Vincent about this question. Like, when did you know that PBTA was going to like go? What was the what was the moment at which you're like, oh shit, this is a thing? And he was like immediately because when he sent out playtest drafts for Apocalypse World, Avery Alder, who wrote Monster Hearts basically sent him back monster arts. Wow. So like it was instantaneous and not just instantaneous. Vincent got worried that Avery was going to publish monster hearts before he finished apocalypse world. That's why those books come out virtually back to back, right? Is because then this is something people I think always miss. Like a lot of us who are in the PBTA community are talking to each other at conventions on in chat on like non-public spaces. Right. And so we're sharing stuff. We're talking about stuff. Um, Jason and I played cartel together at Metatopia in like 2015. And that's when he gave me the, when you get fucking shot mechanic, right? Because he was like, Oh, mm-hmm. this would be great. And it's perfect. And it basically hasn't changed since. Um, so I think that the culture springs up out of PBTA filling a very specific need for people. And what's interesting about that need is it's not what people might expect. Like, there are a lot of games like Fiasco or Our Last Best Hope or other other kind of story gamer games that I kind of think of what uh, Paul Beakley, who's from Arizona, calls uh, talky talk games. Like everybody gets a chance to talk, everybody gets a chance to kind of add their thing to the narrative, but there's not really a sense that the narrative is going somewhere wild and crazy and different. It's like, oh no, we're playing out this kind of story. It's going to look like this, right? And that's really different than say your review of Death Frost Doom. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, this is this is a fucking murder castle, and you're gonna go in, and like, like I'm I'm pretty sure you're gonna die, but like I don't know how, I don't know which of these terrible rooms is gonna wreck you, right? Like I don't know, mm-hmm. and and maybe you go all the way through and you come out the other side and you're a hero and you save the I don't know, we'll see, right? We'll play to find out what happens, and I think for a lot of the story gamer community, there was this hunger for something that provided narrative consistency, but was still about playing to find out what happens. So a lot of PBTA people are not big fans of things like Fiasco or Fates or like, and I think that that is becoming a design divide in some ways between folks who are like, they want their PBTA hit, man. Like they want, they want to play to find out what happens and roll the dice and see where it goes. And, yeah. and people who are kind of interested in playing out the beats of a story according to a kind of not predetermined place, but like with a lot more structure. And as those things have gone on, they have really pushed in different directions. And some people bridge the gap, like, you know, Avery's doing Dream Askew, which is a kind of PBTA game that has a lot of control, or like I originally started doing stuff that's more our last best hopey and now is much more PBTA. I think Forged in the Dark, which is the Blades in the Dark system, is like almost a return to like burning wheel, like the the sense of like grinding out a story and finding out what it is as you go. So there's all these different schools of design that are interacting, but the PBTA folks love the kind of combination of 
strong narrative thrusts, like when you play Dungeon World and you die, you roll, and if you fail, you go to the gates of the Black Gates, and death tells you, Mm -hmm. makes you an offer. That happens in every Dungeon World game. It's not negotiable. That's what the rules say you're supposed to do. You don't want to use the rules, that's cool, but like that's what Dungeon World's about, right? They like that consistency, but what they want is the sizzle and pop of something that's actually a little bit more old school in some ways. Mm, okay okay that makes sense Uh, yeah in a certain way i i feel like there is a antipathy between the osr community and the narrative game community and that often that antipathy sort of uh exhibits itself online as being OSR guys versus PBTA guys. Is that is that true? That's, or is that is that just like a smokescreen? Is that is that just drama and noise? I think there's some big cultural differences, but I think it's ironic that you would put it at the feet of PBTA folks because number one, like Vincent, the original PBTA guy, wrote a, like a whole fucking book for Raji for for OSR. Right, was a seclusium, right, or seclusium, right, which is the oh yeah, right? like yeah, no, it's true, it's true, right. And Magpie, which I would say, you know, we published, we've published a ton of PBTA games and PBTA ash cans and floated PBTA ideas. I mean, Sarah is the, I mean, she's the medalist Magpie, but like, I mean, she she's she's like, you know, in our meetings every day talking about her metal, cool, awesome lamentation stuff. So. I think that there are a lot of cultural differences between the story game community and OSR, but I don't think they're, I think the design differences are less than you might think. And I think that some of those differences are about personalities and some of them are about history. Like there's some, you know, there's some folks who are not happy with each other and, and that's something that's hard to resolve through the internet. Like it's, it's hard to like get people to get along when all they see is each other's posts. Um, but one thing I've been talking with folks a lot about lately is that there's a lot of people of color who are kind of spread throughout those communities, right? So if you go into the OSR, you meet tons of women and people of color who what they want from gaming is to show up to their house, drink some beers, roll some dice, have some crazy stories. And they're not interested in my latest game of social justice nonsense, right? Like they don't, they don't want to play cartel. That's too fucking intense. Like that's not their level of play, not because they're below my level, but because they want something fundamentally different from their night of gaming. And I respect the shit out of that. Cause like when I go to watch a movie, I'm not always interested in having my heart broken. That's not my default setting. Right. And so I think that sometimes the story game community, especially can be a little smug about our, like, well, we invented real games. No real games were invented before, you know, we emerged from the darkness to save you all. It's like, come on guys. Like, I played a shit ton of D&D because when I was 12, it was fucking awesome. And I've played a shit ton of Dungeon World because that was a cool way to recreate that experience. I imagine that if I sat down at your table to play Death Frost Doom, I would have a pretty good time. Right? That's like, that's the point of gaming, right? And how we have a good time is a weird thing to fight about. I'm more interested in how we get to the time we want. And I think that the OSR community as a whole um, is doing some really interesting things. Uh, have you, have you, have you actually played kingdom death? Uh, I've only played it once. Okay. I've only played it one time. We played the opening scenario. Yeah. It was a little too board gamey for me. Yeah, I like totally the aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally board gamey. Um, we're on like year 10 
of, of our kingdom death game. And I fucking love it. It's great. Partially because we make these decisions between rounds. You're hunting these monsters and then between rounds, you like use the monsters parts to make new stuff. Right. But in like classic Mm -hmm. OSR fashion, you're just stuck with whatever choices you made before. Right. Like if you're like, we're committing to do this kind of party where we're going to have two archers and or three archers and only one tank. You're like, okay, when you go into your next round, you don't get to say halfway through, like, I spend a fate point to change everything, right? You're like, that's it. You're fucking stuck, right? Like, like you chose three <laughs> archers, dumbass. Like, like, that's your problem. And playing through that, I think, has really helped me continually and continue to understand, like, I get the idea of challenge-based play. And in fact, so bringing it back to Cartel... So Cartel's really interesting in that I didn't want to just create a game that's like an educational narrative about the drug war. Like, that sounds fucking awful. Like, I don't want to play that, and I can't imagine anybody else wants I mean, there are probably people who do, but they're not. that's not my audience. That's not who I want to write for, right? When I watched The Wire, I had always heard that The Wire was, like, tough to get into. And I watched the first episode, and I was like, I love this show. I was like, this is amazing because all these characters and they're in such tough spots and they don't know what to do and they have to make such difficult choices. And for Cartel, what I've always wanted is not for it to necessarily be challenge-based play, like this kind of gear is better than that kind of gear. That's not really the kind of game I write. But I want you to think really hard about which lie you're about to tell your wife because that's a tool you just gave the GM to mess with you down the road. And Mm -hmm. what I think is great about watching people play cartel is that a gun will come out on the table and they know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember how if you get shot, you might die? So that gun fucking matters. That's not just like, oh, yeah, like there's a gun, whatever. I'm a vampire. That's like your character's (laughs) life is now on the line because someone else is holding a gun and you are not. Right. And so what I want for cartel is to give people a sense of the, the sizzle and excitement of crime fiction right which sometimes ends with some characters face down in the alley yeah now this actually gets perfectly into a question i wanted to ask Good, cool. which which is when you're when, cartel is a crime game yeah right now crime and i would say horror as and because I'm, I'm throwing that in there because this, this podcast is obsessed with both of these genres but <laughs> but but crime and horror both have traditions that are exploitative. They're, 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 and I think it's easy for either one of those uh, genres to either be very like cerebral and challenging, or to be very like exploitative and kind of like uh, very grindhousey, right? Yeah. Uh, is there a way to play cartel that a group could make it? very exploitative does the system get around that what or or on some level what keeps it from being an exploitation game yeah so this is i mean these are great questions that we did bluebeard's bride you know sarah marissa and strix for mm-hmm. bluebeard's bride and what's crazy about that game is that literally like it's a manual on how to gaslight your players like we teach you how to make your players uncomfortable and how to make them uneasy right and like I've always kind of marveled that people don't get more upset about that. <laughs> but part of it is like, if you sit down at a table for Bluebeard's Bride, I mean, I guess if you didn't read the the blurb at the con and you're like, oh, Bluebeard's Bride, I like Bluebeards. Let's go play this game. Like, I guess. Pirates, man. Pirates, cool. Right? Yeah. But like within 30 seconds of Sarah pitching that game to you, you are either in or out, right? If you're out, 
you're out because you're like, this is too real. Thank you. I hope you all have a great day. I'm going to go chuck some dice and kill some dragons. Peace. Or you're like, yeah, baby, gaslight me. Like, do it. Hit me. Make it, make it hurt. And so I think part of this is, is getting consent from people to play that game. And it's one of the reasons I have respect for like challenge-based players, story games that are all kind of talky-talky, past the past the conch kind of things, is because ultimately I think the most successful games are the ones that most clearly signal what they are about. So Dungeons and Dragons does a pretty good job of signaling what it's about. You're gonna run around and have adventures. The quality of those adventures depends heavily on the GM. <laughs> There's not a lot in the system that's gonna make all of a sudden make a shitty GM be great at telling a story in Dungeons and Dragons. And the reason people watch videos like, you know, uh, you know, uh, the strongholds and streaming Matt Colville's, they, well, the reason they watch Matt Colville's videos, uh, he, he does like videos on how to play D and D is because they want to get better at this cool thing that they do. They have fun playing and they want to get better at playing. And that's totally legit. So when I have people sit down to play cartel, what I'm trying to figure out is why are they here? Right? And my hope is that they're here to play through the messy fiction that accompanies things like Once Upon a Time in Mexico or Breaking Bad. So I think it would be really easy to sit down and be like, yeah, I'm going to play Cartel like Grand Theft Auto. We're going to go blow shit up or whatever. But like, it's not clear to me what perspective that comes from. So if you've got three or four people at the table, it's likely one of them is El Narco, who's supposed to be the guy that runs this place. Why does he want you to run out and blow up shit? He's like, he's the boss. Right. Or you've got La Polizetta, who's the dirty cop. The dirty cop has to pretend to be a regular cop sometimes. Right. Or maybe you have like the cook who has like a normal family. So he doesn't want you running around blowing shit up. At some level, all the characters in Cartel are primed to want the status quo. You know, the regular business of running, of making drugs and selling them. And what happens in stories uh, like Breaking Bad is things don't go smooth, right? Like, and that's the story yeah. is things not going smoothly. I mean, that's like the classic uh, crime story, right? right? Is like the beats are, oh, here's some guys who are down on their luck. Oh, they come up with this idea. Then things go well for a while and then there's problems, yeah, right? Yeah. And the, then there's problems. And then we see how that all falls out at the end. Well, and that's, that's interesting because that almost strikes me more as heist fiction, right? And I think there's an interesting division between heist fiction and crime fiction. Like heist fiction is a kind of crime fiction, but it's better represented, I think, by like Blades in the Dark, which just does a f phenomenal job of saying, okay, you are a crew, name your crew, identify your crew, go out and do crime together. Breaking mm -hmm. Bad and The Wire and things like that are more like there is a status quo and everything's working good. And then something happens, and to hold it together, people have to make tough choices. So, you know, in The Wire, Omar robs the Barksdales, and they decide, well, we got we to make an example. And they end up torturing one of Omar's guys, and then pretty sure Omar's like, I have a blood vendetta against these people. I'm going to do whatever it takes to wreck them. And that's not good for anybody's business, right? So things have gotten out of control, and no one seems to be able to de-escalate. See, I... I, I, I I see it a little differently with like through through the the lens of like what you might call like the classic mafia movies, yeah. where uh, there's this there's this period 
that almost every mafia movie hits where the narrator comes on and says, and we had it all figured yeah, out, and true. if everybody had just played by the rule book, it would have gone on forever. But then, <laughs> well, that's, and then somebody yeah. <laughs> somebody grabs like the golden apple. Somebody's got to reach, yeah, right? Some, that's right, yeah. That's true. There is definitely this sense of, before, like I often say, cartel is basically the worst day of your character's life. Right. Like, mm. like you came in every day and you made drugs and things were fine. And then because you lost some drugs or somebody robbed you and nobody believes you or because you ran out of a particular thing and to get it, you had to do something you don't want to do. Whatever the reason is, th- shit is out of control and your character is desperately attempting to kind of get back into control. But the system, and this is, I think, a big difference between this and say like fiasco, the system makes no promises about whether or not you will be able to do so. And to some degree, it's a function of your ability to outsmart, outwit, outlast ever, not only just the NPCs, but also the other PCs at the table, right? And it's great when you watch somebody decide to throw someone else under the bus because they're like, you know, if, if that guy was dead, this really wouldn't be a problem. you've learned a lot from playing vampire i can tell exactly right yeah and so what i wanted from the system was to give people the ability to do that but not have it just instantly resolve right not just have it be i roll to kit you and you roll to hit me but instead have a lot of ways to push things around so last night i ran a session for some folks and uh, the spouse, the is a male spouse. Man was who's married to Lanarca, right? The head of this plaza, kind of got cornered by by a PC and an NPC who were going to kill him. And you know, I cut away from him to do another scene, and we cut back. And I'm like, "What do you do?" And he says, well, "I have this move here that says, if I make a big scene, I can push my luck, which is kind of the core, you know, act under fire move. I can push my luck as if I rolled a ten plus." And I'm like, "Great, yeah. What do you want to do?" He's like, "I want to like." I'm drunk, so I want to like vomit in the corner and then grab the guy's gun. Like that is so perfect. <laughs> yes, and like I had forgotten that we put that move on the spouse's playbook, but it's there because when the spouse gets in super deep trouble, there needs to be a button that they can hit to kind of like get get realigned things a little bit, right? Yeah, and that whole process is what makes PBTA a good fit for things like cartel is. I can wire in a bunch of cool things, right? And then Mm -hmm. let it go, right? Like it's like winding up a big toy and letting it go. And the system will, will unspool in interesting and different ways, but not ways that are just completely unpredictable and wild. They're all going to be within the frame of the narrative. Okay. I got one more question for you on this track and then we're going to shift gears a little bit. All right. Now I don't want this to be too touchy. But the the issue uh, of appropriation yeah. has been everywhere. It's been everywhere. It's you know every type of media around the world for a couple of years now. This has been a very hot button issue. Um, and on some level, I think it's really interesting and great that we're seeing lots of different games coming out. They're written uh, from a POC kind of point of view. Uh, towards what I imagine is a POC kind of crowd, right? Yeah. Uh, and along, you know, I I have I have friends, I have friends that are black. I sat there, played D and D with them, and it's like they have to be like kind of shoehorned into this world that is by its definitions like incredibly Anglo. Yeah. You know, I mean the whole yeah. the whole idea of fantasy role playing is intensely Anglo. So cartel 
has this point of view that is that is Latino. Yep. Right. So I I'm a white dude. A lot of my friends are white dudes. We're gonna sit around. We're gonna play your game. Talk to me about cartel and about gaming and about appropriation. Oh my god, yeah, like that's that's the real deal, right? So, so first of all, I I'm actually not a huge fan of the concept of cultural appropriation because I think that it's it's really vague and hard to explain to people, and I like concepts that are easier to explain. So, for example, if you took a Native American fairy tale, you know, a, a folk tale, a, a tale of a tribe. And you package it up and you sold it as your own. We have a word for that. It's called plagiarism, right? <laughs> like I don't need to explain True. plagiarism in depth to get you to understand why it's wrong, right? And right. I think about something like um, Black Panther, right? So Wakanda is not a real place. So where mm-hmm. did all the symbols for Wakanda come from? Well, they came from other African countries. Are they being appropriated? Ooh, right. Part of yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> part of it is. I feel like they were used really respectfully, that they were used to get across particular ideas about Wakandan culture, that they were used by people who have origins in that part of the world to tell a story that affirmed the conflicts of that part of the world. Having an African-American character in conflict with the African character, dude, my jaw dropped. Like I saw that for me, because I mean, New Mexico, not a ton of Africans or African-Americans, and certainly not ones that are having that conflict in the open. I saw that for the first time when I was like 30 and I was in grad school and I saw, wow, these two perspectives like hit each other really hard. When I saw that in a fucking Marvel movie, dude, I was blown away. I was like, I can't believe that this is here in a Marvel movie. And so to some degree, mm-hmm. the question is, what is the purpose of this work, right? If Robert Rodriguez is making movies where there's, you know, Danny Trejo is carving guys up with knives, I'm like, is that a stereotype? I don't know. I kind of love it. So does it count? Right? So what I think is what I, what I'm worried about is not appropriation. I'm worried about disrespect and cheap thrills. Meaning like if you show up to cartel and you're like, I'm going to totally go out there and rape some people and murder and just do all this terrible stuff. I'm going to stop you and be like, why are you here, dude? Like this, this, this isn't about that. Right, like it, it, that makes as much sense as you deciding to play Death Frost Doom as if it was a Jane Austen novel. Like you, <laughs> like we're we're not on the same page, right? That's the real problem here. Mm-hmm. We're not on the same page. So when you sit down to play and you're all white dudes, like you don't need to speak a bunch of Spanish slang. You don't need to have Speedy Gonzalez accents. You don't need to be like describe at length how you were all not white. You could just play with the constraints of the setting itself. Meaning that you play in Mexico, you're all Mexicans. We don't need to subtitle what you're saying because it's like Hunt for Red October, right? Like you're like, <laughs> like when all the Russians are together, they just they're just speaking English because they all understand each other, right? Um, right, right. And as long as you treat it respectfully, meaning like I'm not here to make fun of this, I'm here to like really do it, then I think you're good, right? And with that in mind, I have to acknowledge a couple of things. One is some Mexican people are not pleased with me for making this game. From their perspective, I'm some American who came in and told them what their story is. And I respect that. Mm. Like I hear, I hear that like for them, they have many different stories they want to tell, but I would, I would also point to the book I just finished for seventh C with John. That is my basically Mesoamerican Wakanda. It's called the new world. And in that world, colonialism never happened. 
So mm-hmm. the Nawakan Alliance, or basically the Aztecs, are still mighty and in power. And great, I, I think we need both Wakanda and the wire. And this is my wire, right? Is the other side of that coin. Now, am I the perfect person to write it? I don't know, man. Like, I feel like this is where I am. But for me, working with Miguel, taking feedback from other Mexican people who are who are saying this makes sense about the book, or this doesn't make sense, or this move doesn't make sense, this move does. Doing the research, like I think as a designer, it's on me to make it as authentic as I can, but also recognizing that there's parts of the drug war that I don't think are interesting or fun to play. And so I am always choosing what's there, right? And second, in addition to acknowledging that, hey, maybe maybe there's some power dynamics here where I'm telling somebody else's story, there's also a sense for me that I know white people are going to play this in many ways more than Mexicans because there's a lot more white gamers than there are Mexican gamers. And so it's also my responsibility to equip you with good tools, meaning I'm going to put a diction, a, you know, a, a glossary in the back of the book with Spanish slang. So when you're reading the book and you come across a word you don't know, you're not going to the internet to try to look, what does he mean by cabron? Like, what, is, what does that mean? Like, I don't, I don't really know. Let's go to the internet and Google cabron and see what I find, right? <laughs> like, I want you to go to the back of the book and be like, oh, yeah, okay, it makes sense. Yeah, I shouldn't use that in public. <laughs> right? You don't want to go to school and be like, hey, cabron, I just learned this new word. And get beat up. Right? Not, not right? So, so I, got, I owe a lot to both sides of this, right? I owe a lot to the Mexican people who are actually living through this and affected by it. But I am also living through it and affected by it here in New Mexico. And I owe something to the white gamers who are willing to take a chance on this and try to play Mexican people in the same with the same seriousness that they would play elves, right? With the with the same seriousness that they would like, I'm gonna give this a shot and see how it is. Awesome. Okay, great. Uh, that's that's an answer I can sink my teeth into, man. Thank awesome. you. So um let's talk about Kickstarter. Uh, you, it sounds like your company has its genesis in Kickstarter. Uh, you guys have done a lot with Kickstarter and your vector, your primary vector for, uh, producing and distributing your product seems to be oriented largely towards the internet online distribution. So, um, talk to me about Kickstarter. Talk to me about like the new, role-playing world that we live in and and talk to me about like brick and mortar stores and where are they going are they going to be around do they have a role to play do we as gamers owe them something gamers and developers what do we owe them if we do owe them anything hard hitting interview i fucking love it yes (laughs) bring it this is great okay so uh, I actually, what I studied for graduate school was, was actually economics and public policy. So I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And what I have seen in the industry is an acknowledgement that what Kickstarter has done is open the floodgates to real financing for RPG projects. Meaning, it's 1992. I come to you and I say, hey, dude, uh, I'm launching this new vampire game and I want you to give me 50 grand to put it together. And you're like, no, that's a crazy idea. I'm going to put my $50,000 in something that isn't going to like burn up and, and be worth nothing, right? And you would be wrong. You would have been wrong, 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 wrong. You should have put your fucking money in Vampire when you had the chance, right? Now, right. how do you know what's going to go and what's not going to go? You have no idea. None of us do. If you had told me Cartel will raise X number of dollars, I would say, cool, I guess, when we do our internal projections, I can't tell you whether Cartel is going to raise $20,000 or $200,000. I've seen crazy things happen. Like we had no idea 
Bluebeard's Bride was going to hit the way it did. So every project we do, just like every movie that's released, is kind of a crapshoot. And what Kickstarter does is it allows us to figure out, okay, what level is this project at? Right? What, what should we be working at? What makes sense for this project? And when we do something like 7C and we raise over a million dollars, we're like, holy shit, this is, a, this is a thing. But we feel the exact same way when we raise 100 grand for masks. Because 7C is an 8.5 by 11 full-color role-playing game that's been like, you know, well-known by gamers all over the world. And masks is a brand-new IP nobody's ever heard of before. right? And so we're always calibrating our responses to what we're seeing on Kickstarter. All right, so... Let's talk about the other end of the spectrum. Retail stores are more important to us than they ever have been. And that's because while gamers are playing online and they're talking online, new people are not going to find cartel by Googling cartel, like, or my name, or I, I don't know, like, <laughs> what's the logic there, right? Like they wake up one day and they're like, you know what I've always wanted? A game about Mexican drug lord. That is, is there such a game? Let me go to Google and find out what that game is like, right? Like, <laughs> what we hear is that games are like 10% of the industry. The other 90% is board card and magic, magic cards especially. And of that 10%, a big, big, big chunk is D&D. Just straight up, right? Yeah, right? It's yeah. It's like Coca-Cola versus, we're not even RC Cola. We're like the cola that sold at the local grocery store bottled by a local artisan <laughs> right straight big k yeah straight from our basement to your table right like our artisanal role-playing games handcrafted for you sir sold at the farmer's market <laughs> so with that in mind right we know that retail stores are absolutely crucial and the retail stores that sell our books are the ones who are managed by people who know something about role-playing games so jim crocker's store in new york uh, Jim's a good friend of ours. He can run any one of those games in his store for you at the drop of a hat. And I've been in stores where they don't even know how to run D&D. Right? So what do we owe retail stores? I think it's tough, right? Because your local retail store may vary from the really terrible basement, like murder scene retail store where you're like, <laughs> I would not leave my kid here to the beautiful, amazing family friendly store that Jim operates in New York right? Modern myths, beautiful store. If you live in New York, if you live in uh, Massachusetts, where his other story is, you got to go. It's amazing. Um, and they have game nights and they, and they nurture new gamers and they have a space that's friendly for queer folks and people of color and women and everybody, right? I want every single store in the country to be that because I will tell you that the, the, the most difficult part of this job is not selling things on Kickstarter. It's selling things two, five, ten years down the road when, when, the, when the buzz is long gone but there's somebody who would gladly have a copy of Cartel if only it showed up in front of them at their local store and somebody showed them how to play it. Yeah, and I, I, I really feel that because when Urban Shadows dropped, it was like super hot. Everybody had to have one. Uh, it was on the shelves at the local spots. Yep. And then it kind of dried up. And now like the, I, I saw the player's guide or the second the companion like on the Magpie site, but I never saw it in a store. Yep. And um, I really believe that the store is where people talk about games. If you look at what happened with White Wolf, where they intentionally went to a model that said, we're online only, we're next generation, we're print on demand. And what happens to that company when they did that? They vanished. 
they like they suddenly no one was talking about them anymore yet the model for sales yeah. is is being pushed so hard online yeah. It just—it seems—it's—it's it's just really tough for our friends in brick and mortar stores to survive. Well, I, I hope I don't like—I hope the Magicians Alliance doesn't show up and yell at me. But I'll, I'll tell you the, the the numbers a little bit behind that, right? So basically, if you, if you sell a book into distribution, you know you're selling it for for a discount, right? The idea is that the retail store mm-hmm. is buying it for me. They're not paying forty dollars for a Bluebeard's Bride book and then selling it for forty dollars. Like, how would they make a living? They're buying exactly. it at a discount, at a wholesale discount, in order to sell it. So for most companies like Paizo or White Wolf that are doing a lot of online sales, what they're doing is they're sitting there and saying, well, why would I give any money to a retailer? Like, I'll just take all that money myself. I can make half as many sales and make the same amount of money. For mm-hmm. us, we're a very community-driven company. Like, we're basically an artist co-op. Everybody sits around and makes decisions together about what we're doing. Like, Sarah's not just some employee of Magpie. She's a core of our whole way of thinking. And when we look at the future of gaming, nothing makes me sadder than you coming to our website, buying your copy of Cartel, putting it up on your shelf, and just sort of looking at it. <laughs> like, like, oh, man, you're describing all my games right, right now, man. <laughs> well, but hopefully not all your games. Like some of the games you don't get to the table, but I'm hoping that, you know, like, look, I love weekly game nights, man. I When I was a LARPer, one of the things I loved about LARP was every two weeks there was a game and you showed up and you saw other people mm-hmm. and you connected with people. And LARPs mm-hmm. make me crazy, but I also get it, right? Like there's 50 people at the LARP, you know they're going to be there. It breaks my heart that I think more people are buying games than ever before and fewer people are playing them. And I think part of the reason is because we have, as an industry, not done a great job of supporting those spaces in which games actually occur. So here in New Mexico, we're doing a, Magpie is a fiscal sponsor for New Mexicon, which is our yearly convention, happens every April. Um, it's coming up real soon and it's open and it's open to the public. It's not like you gotta you know, have a special indie badge to come. We have a ton of OSR games that people run, Death Frost Dune kind of stuff, right? Like people love that mm-hmm. shit and we have it every year. Um, and this year it's April 20th to 22nd here in New Mexico. It's 60 bucks for a badge, but all the games happen in private rooms. So every single game is like you're at your table at home playing with people in a quiet environment playing games you've probably never even heard of before because it's totally indie, farmer's market, table, you know, basement to table games. And it's a great community. And we're building that community because for me as a business owner, if all I'm thinking about is my bottom line, I might wake up one day and not have any line at all, right? Like what I want is to build a big, huge community of people playing indie games or Dungeons & Dragons or whatever in order to make sure that down the road, 10, 20, 30 years from now, there's a healthy, robust culture of play. Because play is mm-hmm. why we're actually here. And I know one out of every 10 people actually plays the game. And, and I say that looking at my collection of board games where I'm like, have I actually <laughs> played Roll Through the Galaxy in the last 10 years? Right? Like, I know that you're, not every game is going to make it to your table. But my hope is that at least the best ones get there often. Right. And, and that's mm-hmm. the thing where, you know, the reason D&D has such a big hold, in my opinion, is not just because it's a classic. I mean, it is. But also because... If you walk down to the street right now, just shouted into the distance, I would like to play D&D. Somebody might come out and be like, I have a game on Tuesdays, right? Like there's enough people <laughs> playing D&D that you can always find a game. That's not true for Cartel, right? It's true. It's true. It's true. Um, and on that note, Full Metal RPG is proud to sponsor 
Sarah Doombringer's room at New Mexico. Yes, you are, right? <laughs> we, are, we are. We are. We are proud. We are proud to have our name over the door where she'll be running Lamentations of the Flame Princess with a very choice, very choice premise for a game. So if you're in New Mexico and you have the means to attend this con, then please, by all means, do. Um, that's very exciting work that you guys are doing in that community. Thank you for that. Mark D.S. Truman sits down to write a game. He's, he clears off his desk. He's got a brand new sheet of white paper in front of him and a pen. So this, this is a fantasy, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> what, walk me through it, man. Walk me through it for all of us who are like looking, who are, who are looking at you and, and we're thinking, I want to be a game developer too. I want to write games. I want to kick them. Yeah, I want to publish yeah. them. Yeah. Walk me through uh, it. Where do you begin? I wish, I, Where does it go? I wish it was like that. <laughs> here's what actually happened. <laughs> here's, here's the reality. So I'll be working on something. Like when I was, when I actually wrote Cartel, or at least the core of Cartel while I was wrapping up Urban Shadows. So every day I'm coming to the office and I'm hammering away at this thing that should have been done. I wish it was done. Good God, why isn't it done yet? Oh my God, this is so fucking hard. Why do I do this? I should just bag groceries for a living. This is impossible. <laughs> and then something will hit, right? And I'll be like, you know, that Breaking Bad show is pretty awesome. I wonder if it had Mexicans. Oh my God, this is an amazing idea. And in like a almost drug-fueled binge for like 20 minutes, I will sketch out something. And then half the time I will throw that away and move on with my day, Right. But the other half of the time, it starts to take shape. And then there will be some deadline like, hey, I'm going to a con. I'm going to play test this thing. Or uh, some folks are coming in from out of town. They'd like to try something new that I'm doing. And that's when I kind of like struggle and lift it up onto the table from the floor. right? And that part, I think, is the easy part. The hard part is when you start asking, does this thing have legs? Meaning, can it stand on its own down the road? Um, so here's a great example. I wrote a game called By the Book, where you play basically Gotham City police detectives. And you're like the good cops in a department of terrible cops. And you're trying to like do the major crimes thing, but everybody else is corrupt or incompetent or whatever. And you take these cases that you know you probably can't solve, and you can hand them over to the mask, to the Batman, anytime you want. But if you do that, what's the fucking point? He's just as much outside the law as the corrupt cops are, right? Mm -hmm. I love this concept for a game. I think it's amazing. I have never gotten it to work to my satisfaction. People play it. They're like, oh, I had a great time. And I'm like, you are so kind. You are so kind to me. <laughs> you had an okay time, sir, right? And, and that's because our standard for great time is pretty high, right? I want people to leave the table like, cool, what was that, right? feverish feverish excited blown away and when they're like that was solid i'm like good cool put it back up on the lift man we got to fix it i gotta get that nitro in there and so we've just never been able to make it work and that you still working on it yeah totally but but what does working on it mean when i'm in the middle of finishing up this urban shadows playbook in the middle of getting the cartel kickstarter done then i'll work on the cartel book i talk about our work as having two sides leaps and work work is there is 150 pages here and you got to get this down to 144 pages because that's what the printer has agreed to print. Cut six pages, dude. Won't be a big deal. It won't feel like cutting off your hand, right? To decide which six <laughs> pages go, right? No, it's not a big deal, right? And then like a week later, you're like, okay, I only have this one hand left, but I've done it. I've cut <laughs> off my own flesh and bone for you, sir. And the printer prints it, right? 
And then there's leaps. Leaps are when you're like in the shower and you're like, what if we used keys from Lady Blackbird instead of XP on a miss? And all of a sudden, the potential opens up in front of you. And what that potential is, is work. Now, design 40 keys, right? They're all going to basically work the same way, but they need to be different enough that they're interesting and similar enough that people aren't confused, but also interesting enough that they're fun, but also different enough that they're not the same, right? Do five of them? Easy. 40? Ugh. Impossible, right? So it's this constant going back and forth, right, of the leap of inspiration striking. And I think that's why we spend so much time trying to bring different and unique voices into the hobby is because what I see when I see bad design is a lot of work and not very much leap, right? And what's exciting for me about like the OSR is it's like all leap all the time. Leap, 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 leap. This is going to be awesome. This is crazy. It's madness. And, and I love it. It's great. It may not be for me, but I'm excited about it because I think the fusion of exciting, interesting jumps with the work to polish and refine those jumps is what makes games amazing and awesome. Um, and sometimes I'm, if I had to pick between the two, I'm going to take leap by a mile, right? Vampire might've been a kind of a mess of a game, but when it's on, <laughs> when it works, dude, like, you know, high school for the damned, when it works, there's nothing like it. Right. And that's what I love when it works. There's nothing like it. I'll take that over. It produces a boring and consistent experience any day of the week. <laughs> well said man well said well mark diaz truman thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure having you this evening thanks man it's been great i like sarah sarah ranted and raved about you guys you seem like uh uh you're did yeah, she yeah you guys are you guys are good folks man we love we love uh uh like i said you know interesting every single time i take interesting uh, and full metal, full metal <laughs> RPG podcast is super interesting. Like you guys are, you guys are great. <laughs> Love you. Well, well, right on, man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, and thanks for stopping by the show. Thank you. 